Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, When You Pray. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, July 24, 2016. The philosopher John Hick once observed that if you collected all the images of God that have been created by religion, they'd form a book the size of a telephone directory. I remember walking through the Egyptian section of the British Museum back in 2004. There, for example, I met the god Sobek, pictured as a man with the head of a crocodile. Or consider the Hindu fire god Agni. He has two faces smeared with butter, seven tongues, gold teeth, seven arms, and three legs. Or to take a third example, when I read Mary Beard's history called SPQR a few months ago, I was reminded of the violent gods of Greece and Rome. Despite our many divisions, one liturgical confession has united Christians for 2,000 years. Every Sunday, almost every Christian in every country around the world prays the prayer that Jesus taught us in this week's Gospel from Luke chapter 11. Our Father in Heaven. Luke writes how the disciples ask Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. Implicit in that request was their admission that there were many things that they didn't understand about prayer. Jesus didn't commend any technique or regimen. Rather, when you pray, he said, trust the character of God. Three readings this week give us glimpses of the divine character that in fact encourage us to pray. Jesus says that God is quote-unquote in heaven. He's infinite mysterious, and beyond human comprehension. This spatial language warns us of any presumption and of our chronic inclination to create God in our own earthly image. The frailty of our prayers will always flirt with blasphemy and idolatry, said C.S. Lewis, and so he commended in a poem what he called a footnote to all prayers. Listen to Lewis. He whom I bow to only knows to whom I bow. When I attempt the ineffable name, murmuring thou, and dream of Phidian fancies and embrace in heart symbols I know which cannot be the thing thou art. Thus always taken at their world, all prayers blaspheme, worshiping with frail images a folklore dream. In all men in their praying, self-deceived address the coinage of their own unquiet thoughts, unless thou in, thou in magnetic mercy to thyself divert our arrows, aimed unskillfully beyond desert. In all men are idolaters crying unheard to a deaf idol, if thou take them at their word. So take not, O Lord, our literal sense. Lord, in thy great unbroken speech, <clears throat> our limping metaphor translate.
Similarly, the preacher in Ecclesiastes 5.2 says, Don't be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. So let your words be few. But the transcendence of God doesn't mean that he's remote or unknowable, like the deist's absentee landlord. Rather, God in his compassion and condescension, says C.S. Lewis, translates the limping metaphors of our prayers. Jesus says that God is not only high up, high and lifted up in heaven, he's near and dear as a father to every person. God is infinite, yes, but he's also intimate. In Paul's language to the Ephesians, he's the father of every family in heaven and on earth. And so those first familiar words of the Lord's Prayer, Our Father. God is like a tender father, said Jesus. Paul says the same thing in Romans. We shouldn't relate to God as a slave who fears a master, but as a child who feels safe with a parent. Abba, Father. Abba is the Aramaic word that Jesus used that means something like Papa. The word is used only three times in the New Testament and conveys a shocking sense of human intimacy with the divine infinite. It's a word that little children first learning to speak used for their father and that Jesus himself used to pray to God in the Garden of Gethsemane. This picture of God as a tender father always reminds me of another museum. During the four years that my family lived in Moscow, 1991 to 95, we would take the overnight train to St. Petersburg. There we visited the Hermitage Museum, which houses Rembrandt's prodigal son, 1636. The painting is enormous and full of deep, dark reds and browns. In it, the bent-over father embraces his kneeling son with compassion, tenderness, and without any recriminations. The real prodigal here is God the Father, wildly extravagant in his love. While the son was still far off, the father ran to meet him, embraced him, and kissed him. He then threw a party for him. Then there's the prophet Hosea, who pictures God as a spurned lover. He compares God's love for Israel to the raw emotions of a jilted lover. Despite his pain at the unfaithfulness of his woman, he simply can't help himself because he loves her so much. He won't give up, even on a one-sided relationship. To communicate the radical nature of his love, God commands Hosea to enact a living parable or a symbolic act. He instructs Hosea to marry a prostitute named Gomer. The point of this shocking act is simple and powerful. We read in Hosea 3.1, Go, love the harlot Gomer, 
Love her just as the Lord loves the Israelites, even though they turn to other gods. Israel had prostituted herself in every way possible, religiously, politically, and economically. But God still loved her. He longed to woo her, to speak tenderly to her, and to show her my love. Three times in the prophecy, he promises to betroth Israel to me forever. And in a beautiful play on words in chapter 2, the Hebrew in Hosea reads, I will show my love to the one called not my love. Hosea's God is very different from Homer's gods. He's like a tender, patient, and forgiving spouse who keeps loving us no matter what we've done or how badly we've failed in our relationship. Thirdly, there's Genesis chapter 18, where even the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, so infamous for its fire and brimstone, portrays God as an extraordinarily lenient judge. Abraham intercedes for Sodom and Gomorrah, but there's a catch. He asks God, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Abraham wasn't concerned for the wicked. He just wanted God to spare the righteous. God, of course, responded, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham kept haggling with God, wondering how low the crazy moral calculus might go. In the end, God promised to spare the entire city if there was but a tiny handful of righteous people. Because God is like a tender father, a crazy lover, and a lenient judge, Jesus invites us to pray. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, he tells us. If a person will answer the door at midnight when a visitor knocks, how much more will God respond to our prayers? And when a child asks for basic food, like a fish or an egg, no parent would ever give him something poisonous, like a snake or a scorpion. So how much more will God give good gifts to his children, says Jesus? And so the Psalms for this week encourage us to trust ourselves to the loving providence of a good God. We read, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. The Lord will indeed give what is good. For books this week, I review a new memoir. It's by Anderson Cooper and Gloria Vanderbilt, his mother. The title is called The Rainbow Comes and Goes, A Mother and Son on Life, Love, and Loss. New York, Harper, 2016. This book is 290 pages long. <clears throat> I had decided not to check this book out of the library, but then I noticed that it was perched on the number one spot on the New York Times bestseller list for nonfiction books. Could all those readers be wrong, I wondered? My instincts weren't entirely wrong. 
The book is a strange mix of the bygone world of Downton Abbey and binge-reading People magazine, with enough pain and sorrow to rival that of the Kennedy clan. The CNN news anchor Anderson Cooper, born in 1967, is the son by the fourth marriage of the heiress Gloria Vanderbilt, born in 1924. As in, you will recall, the shipping and railroad baron Commodore Cornelius Vanderbilt, who died in 1877, and who amassed one of the greatest fortunes of his day. That's a big name to carry, Anderson Cooper says in the understatement of the book, he himself got to fly under the radar a bit as a Cooper, whereas his mother was not so lucky. In Cooper's memory, in fact, his mother never once spoke of the Vanderbilts. That silence, in fact, spoke volumes. Which is to say that, as in many families, whether rich or poor, much history goes unspoken and consequently gets lost forever. To his credit, Anderson Cooper wanted to ask his mother those unspoken questions before it was too late. And so he writes, I hope what follows will encourage you to think about your own relationships and perhaps help you start a new kind of conversation with someone you love. <coughs> Although they co-write this book, it's mainly the son, Anderson, asking his 92-year-old mother, Gloria, questions and letting her explain what she calls, quote, the chaos I had come from, end quote. Gloria Vanderbilt's father died from alcoholism when she was a baby. Her mother and aunt fought a bruising and very public custody trial over Gloria when she was 10, known back then as the trial of the century. She later learned that her mother was gay. She watched her 23-year-old son Carter, Anderson's brother, jump to his death from the 14th floor of their New York City apartment. In addition to Gloria's four marriages, there were lovers like Howard Hughes, Marlon Brando, and Frank Sinatra. She was an accomplished artist, actress, and designer, but business managers defrauded her of millions. It's with good reason that toward the end of the book she quotes Faulkner, the past isn't dead, it's not even past. I read this book as a cautionary tale about labeling people and making assumptions about them. Vanderbilt still recalls the sting and shame that she felt as a young girl when she read that she was quote a poor little rich girl. Anderson Cooper admits that he's not a self-made man, but he bristles when people assume that he inherited a trust fund, which he did not. It's impossible to relate to this sort of life, of course, riding to your private school in a chauffeur-driven Rolls-Royce, or living in swank hotels all over the world. Nonetheless, Gloria Vanderbilt and Anderson Cooper would be the first to tell you that the cliché is true for all of us, money can't buy you love, friends, self-esteem, or personal peace. It's enough to make you grateful for the everyday life 
of an ordinary person. Once again, a book by Anderson Cooper and his mother, Gloria Vanderbilt. The title of the book, The Rainbow Comes and Goes. For movies this week, I go to the PBS website in a documentary called Janice Joplin, Little Girl Blue. This movie was released in 2016. You only need to hear a few seconds of one of her songs to know that the raspy vocals and the raw lyrics are those of Janis Joplin, who lived from 1943 to 1970. Her career lasted only four years and produced four albums, but it was way more than enough to make her one of the leading female vocalists of her day. This documentary film does not have a single narrator, but instead draws on the memories of many people who were closest to her, most noticeably her sister, and then the members of the three bands that Janis Joplin fronted, Big Brother and the Holding Company, Full Tilt Boogie, and the Cosmic Blues Band. Joplin's big break came at the 1967 Monterey Jazz Festival. Others will remember her Woodstock performance. On stage, she was an uncompromising nonconformist, but after the show and behind the bravado, she was a deeply lonely and insecure woman who never outgrew her unhappy childhood in Port Arthur, Texas. Her drug problems were bad long before she was famous. Bad enough, in fact, for her buddies in San Francisco to buy her a bus ticket and send her back home to Texas. The best part of this film is the archival performance footage, along with the tender letters that Janis Joplin wrote back to her parents. She died of a heroin overdose at the age of 27. I watched this film on the PBS website. It's part of their series called American masters. And finally, for poetry this week, we continue in our series of poems by Edwina Gately. The title of this poem for this week is called Called to Say Yes. It's from her book of poetry, There Was No Path, So I Trod One. We are called to say yes, that the kingdom might break through to renew and to transform our dark and groping world. We stutter and we stammer to the lone God who calls and pleads a new Jerusalem in the bloodied Sinai Straits. We are called to say yes, that honeysuckle may twine and twist its smelling leaves over the graves of nuclear arms. We are called to say yes, that children might play on the soil of Vietnam, where the tanks belched blood and death. We are called to say yes, that black may sing with white and pledge peace and healing for the hatred of the past. We are called to say yes, that nations might gather and dance one great movement for the joy of humankind. We are called to say yes so that rich and poor embrace and become equal in their poverty through the silent tears that fall. 
We are called to say yes, that the whisper of our God might be heard through our sirens and the screams of our bombs. We are called to say yes to a God who still holds fast to the vision of the kingdom for a trembling world of pain. We are called to say yes to this God who reaches out and asks us to share his crazy dream of love. Edwina Gately, called to say yes. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net. For Sunday, July 24th, 2016, I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.